Um, hello, everybody. Uh, if we want to take our seats and we're going to get started in just uh, uh, a wee moment. Uh, and uh, you don't have to, though. You can stand up if you, if you prefer. Um, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, my name is Colleen Flood, and I'm the Dean of uh, the Law School. Um, I've had the honour and privilege of having that position since the 1st of July last uh, year. So I keep telling everyone I'm brand new, and I don't know how long I'll get to do that, but I'll just keep, uh, I'll just keep winging it until someone says you're no longer allowed to do it. Um, it's uh, truly just an honour and a, a privilege to uh, lead this outstanding law school and to work with the brilliant staff. You've seen some of them here today, our wonderful students, our wonderful faculty. Uh, David is here with us alumni and all our other supporters that are here in the room as well. Uh, thank you very much for coming out today and for all your support that uh, many of you in this room have given to us over the years um, with your labor and sometimes with your actual money. Uh, we really greatly appreciate it. You know, it's with that kind of support that we've been able to, you know, help many of our students uh, access law school and so that the, the fees you know, that we have to charge to kind of keep going aren't actually a, a lock on the door. Uh, and so we really appreciate that. We also appreciate that it enables us to run incredible experiential learning opportunities uh, like the Elder Law Clinic that, that David started and the students that get to work there and our Business Law Clinic and enables us to send our students um, to compete and uh, the most competitive mooting competitions in the world and win them. So uh, thank you very much to all of you that have supported us and we are we are truly grateful. I'm, I'm very, very grateful uh, for all of this. So just a very warm welcome to you all. I just want to acknowledge that um, we're standing here on, on these beautiful lands and by this beautiful lake and these beautiful waters, which are the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. Um, I'm very grateful, um, as, a, as you can tell by this melodious accent, a relatively recent immigrant from New Zealand. Um, really grateful to, to be able to be here and to work here and raise my, my family here. And I know that we all are too, and that and in this acknowledgement, we pay respect to the Indigenous peoples uh, of this region and from across Canada or Turtle Island, as the Indigenous people refer to it as. So I just didn't make a note uh, of that before we start. So today, uh, really thrilled that we have this uh, seminar. I was kind of tweeting about it, death and taxes come to us all, but it's more complicated than that. Uh, and uh, so the complication is what we're discussing tonight, uh, incapacity planning and end-of-life decision-making. Uh, we have a fantastic panel, two of our outstanding alumni. We're so proud of them both, so uh, David will introduce you in a minute to help guide these crucial conversations. Um, so our moderator is David Friedman. Um, he is a professor here with us at Queen's and our in-house expert in trusts, wills, estates, estate litigation, civil procedure and trial advocacy, busy guy. Uh, and he also maintains a practice. He works as well with Wagner Sidlov, Sidlovsky, mm -hmm. uh, and practices in the area of his teaching, which keeps him um, ship shape in Bristol fashion, as mm -hmm. we like to say. 
current with everything that is actually happening in the world, which is no uh, small thing. Um, so thank you, David, very much for facilitating the event tonight. Um, he's going to introduce our guests. Uh, they're going to both speak briefly, and um, then we will have lots of time for Q&A, both with the folks online. David's going to moderate that with the question and answer. I think you put your uh, questions in there, and of course, in the room. So welcome again, everybody. Uh, lovely to have you here. Thank you very much, Colleen. Um, at the outset, I'd like to thank the Faculty of Law and the Dean for being interested to put on this event. Um, in the Faculty of Law, we teach students and we talk about access to justice a lot, but it's really nice to have an opportunity to speak to not just lawyers and not just law students, but people that are interested in these issues. And I very much hope that for people that have taken the time out of their days on a Thursday afternoon in the winter to attend either in person or online, that um, we can answer your questions and give you the information that you're interested in. Um, I would like to uh, thank the staff members that were involved um, in setting this up and working so hard uh, to get everything arranged. Uh, Natalie uh, Monez, uh Hannah, Sabrina Test and Jacqueline Bell are, are three staff members um, in the Faculty of Law that have done yeoman's uh, labor to get this uh, underway, and I very much uh, appreciate it. So the subject matter that my colleagues and I would like to talk about today is um, the area of law that we now call substitute decision-making. And that is the ability of a person to make important decisions for another person where they're incapable of doing so. And this is um, a very significant area of law, and it's increasingly significant. Um, I, I dug out some statistics earlier this week, um, and I just want to put things into perspective a little bit. Life expectancy in Canada now is about 83 years. Lesser for men, more for women, there is a variation amongst the provinces and variation amongst cultural groups, especially between the Aboriginal communities and, um, and the general population. Uh, the segment of the population that's um, age 65 or older is about 18.8%, and about 2.2% of the general population is over age 85. So there is a large segment of the population that are older. And what we know about cognitive incapacity, in particular, the most scary word in the world, dementia, um, certainly increases with age. Uh, a 2022 study by the Alzheimer's Society suggests by 2030, there'll be about a million Canadians with some form of dementia. And by 2050, that number will rise to about 1.7 million. So an awful lot of people are going to be cognitively impaired that require access to the law and access to substitute decision makers. Not to say that our only people that have dementia require substitute decision makers, or not to say that all people that have dementia have no capacity to make decisions for, for themselves. There's tremendous variation. 
Um, with, with respect to the prevalence of dementia or some form of dementia, um, the statistics also tell us that about 1% of the general population um, age 65 to 69 experience some form of dementia. So, And that's on par with um, people under age 65. So if there's any view that people as they age are going to become demented, under, for, for people 70 or 69 or younger, 1%. So not tremendously significant. But it does become more significant as one ages. So if 1% of the general population 69 or under are experienced cognitive incapacities in the form of dementia, that rises to 2.4% for people aged 70 to 74, 5.9% for people aged 75 to 79, 12.4% people age 80 to 84, and 25% of people age 85 or older. Um, so again, this is not to say that a person that experiences dementia is completely cognitively incapable. It is to say that um, this is a pressing issue that um, goes hand in hand with aging and that it's a prudent thing for people to plan on incapacity given that life expectancies are continuing to rise and the segment of the general population that I would say are the oldest older people continue to rise as well. So um, what we would like to do today, my colleagues and I, is to talk about some of the basic issues dealing with uh, incapacity planning for both property management and for personal care, and some of the pitfalls and the litigation that arises, either where there's been a lack of planning or where difficult issues arise that requires the intervention of the court. And I can tell you for those people that are practicing law in uh, estates, trust, and guardianship litigation, the percentage of one's practice that is devoted to, to issues to deal with incapacity is rising all the time. I would say for people that are practicing full-time in litigation in the area of estates, trust, and guardianship work, probably about a third of the practice is now substitute decision-making related which was never the case years ago. Years ago, uh, incapacity, cognitive issues were few and far between. Now it's everyday fair. Um, so I'd like to introduce my colleagues, and I'm very pleased to have them here to speak um, to, to us because they're, they're both excellent at their jobs, very knowledgeable, very well connected to the law school and, and, and the Kingston community. Uh, Alexandra Manthorpe is a partner in the Wilson Estates Group at Cunningham, Swan, Cardi, Little, and Bonham in uh, Kingston. And the firm has traditionally had a very uh, close and supportive relationship with the law school, for which we thank them. Uh, Alexander completed an honors undergraduate degree at Mount House in New, in New Brunswick. Then she was a student at Queen's Law, where she received the course prize in the Wilson Estates and participated in the Elder Law Clinic and in the law school generally, and made quite an impression on all of us. Um, she practiced in Toronto and Oakville before returning to Kingston in 2021. Her, her uh, practice is focused on estate and trust planning, business succession planning, and estate and trust administration. 
She regularly presents at uh, continuing professional development programs for the Law Society and the Ontario Bar Association, and is involved uh, with seminars for the local community. And she serves on the Dean's Council at, at Queen's Law. And at some point, we'll rope her into teaching. Uh, Leanne Kaufman is President and CEO of the Royal Trust Corporation of Canada and the Royal Trust Company. Uh, she is responsible for strategy and overall management of the business. She's a director of the Royal Trust Board and a member of the RBC Wealth Management Canada Operating Committee. Uh, she joined Royal Trust in 1999 as a trust officer. Before that, she was a lawyer practicing commercial litigation. Leanne is a graduate from uh, the Faculty of Law uh, here at Queen's and has a master's in law degree from Osgoode Hall Law School in Toronto, where she uh, was an adjunct professor. Her publications include the fourth edition of the Executor's Handbook, which is published by CCH. She contributes to the Financial Post. She's the host of RBC Wealth Management Canada's um, Matters Beyond Wealth podcast. She's a member of uh, the STEP Worldwide Council. STEP is the Society for Trust in the State's Practitioners and is a very important um, association for practicing uh, lawyers and, and uh, professionals working with estate planning. Um, she's on the National Institute on Aging Advisory Board and the Queen's University Gift Planning Advisory Committee. Leanne is going to talk first, then Alexandra, then I'll uh, be clean up. Um, we probably will each speak for 15, 20 minutes, something like that. Um, and then we'll open um, the floor for questions, both to people that are present here with us um, in the Faculty of Law and online. I assume that if you're here, you're probably here for a reason. You probably have questions. So when we do open it up, I very strongly encourage you to ask your questions. We would very much like to be able to give you the information that you need. Thanks very much. Leanne, you're up. Great. Thank you. David was kind enough not to say what year I graduated from Queen's Law, but they didn't have an elder law clinic then, if that gives you any sense. So... Um, I have been talking to clients for years, given the nature of the work that I do, about these kinds of issues, about the importance of estate planning, estate administration, um, getting your affairs in order. It's not often a, a, a popular topic. You know, people know they have to do it, but it's not something they really love doing or, or uh, kind of like going to the dentist. You know, you got to do it. You got to do it every year, but it's hard to get up the motivation. But I would say that, um, like, I would echo David's sentiments that the uh, issues tied to incapacity and substitute decision-making have really kind of alarmed me um, as I see what's happening. And really, I think we need to be doing more of this to amp up um, amplification around, you know, educating folks about this, because uh, it's something that will impact a number of us, and uh, we want people to be well-prepared and plan for it when the time comes. However, we did some studies at uh, RBC, and while 68% of the people that we surveyed said that they had a pretty good idea about what estate planning meant, 25% of them said that they didn't know where to start in getting a will, and 23%, I don't know why the number is different, didn't know where to start in getting a power of attorney. 
But as I said, powers of attorney, I think, are becoming even more important than they were in the past. David's highlighted a number of the statistical realities of our demographics and what is coming down the pipe. Um, one of the things that I'll add to that is that seniors over the age of 85 are one of the fastest growing groups. So there's twice as many of them today as there were 20 years ago. And in the next 25 years, there could be three times as many people over age 85 as there is today. And as David said, I think your number was 25%. I've sometimes heard one in three people over age 85 have some form of cognitive impairment. So that means we're going to triple the number of people, unless something happens medically, that have that form of cognitive impairment. And so that's tripling the number of people who are relying on a power of attorney to do their job. The other thing I'll mention is there's almost two women for every one man over the age of 85. So this is very much as much, if not more, of a women's issue than it is a man's. A man's. So power of attorney, that's the document name, capital P, capital A, or we sometimes call it POA, you'll hear it called POA, is a legal document in which you name a specific person or persons to make decisions on your behalf. I'm going to talk about powers of attorney for property or for assets, financial matters. Alexandra is going to cover the uh, powers of attorney for personal care, your health care decisions, and your housing and so on. Your attorney for personal care can only be an individual or individuals, whereas your power of attorney for property can be an individual or individuals, you can have more than one, or it can be a professional trust company like the one that I work for. You can elect to have different powers of attorney for care than for property. It's not always done, but some people do prefer this. However, it is critically important that the attorneys work hand in glove, especially when it comes to issues around uh, living arrangements, where one's going to live, how that's going to get paid for, and caregiving, if, if paid caregiving is required. So, like we've said, one of the main purposes of setting up a power of attorney is to appoint someone else to take care of your, and again, I'm talking about assets here, so money, assets, property, while you're alive, but you're physically or more commonly mentally unable to manage your affairs yourself. What I will say is I'm seeing more commonly in our business, people asking us to act as their power of attorney while they still have capacity, but they are generally of fairly advanced age and they're either um, feeling vulnerable. There's some reason they're feeling vulnerable that they're worried that they're not able to manage their affairs or they won't be for much longer. They see something coming down the pipe or they're just tired. In some cases, you know, when people get well into their 90s and they don't have someone to help them out, they're just, they just want to know that it's taken care of. So we are seeing, um, that's a trend I would say that we are seeing. So I'll spend a little bit of time talking about the formalities, the documentation itself. Uh, we call the person who's making the power of attorney document, we call them the donor sometimes. I don't know where that word comes from, but you might hear it, you might hear that phrase be used. And then the person who's being appointed is the attorney. They don't have to be a lawyer. You'd be surprised how many times we get that question, but it is not required that that person be a lawyer. It can be, it can be uh, pretty much anyone. Most powers of attorney that are created in Ontario and in Canada, frankly, are what we call a continuing power of attorney. So it's continuing because it comes into effect the moment that is signed, even though it shouldn't typically be used the moment that it's signed, but it can continue beyond the point that the individual who made it has lost their capacity. You may sometimes also hear it referred to as an enduring power of attorney. 
The other side uh, uh, to that continuing power of attorney is something that I don't think we, we see a lot of anymore called a springing power of attorney. And that means that certain conditions have to be met before that power of attorney comes into place. I think the reason, and, and my colleagues may have some thoughts on this, the reason that those have be kind of fallen out of vogue or become less popular is it's very hard to get those conditions proven in some cases. So if you say that it's only when there's medical evidence of my incapacity that the power of attorney comes into play, it may be a challenge to get medical evidence of incapacity on any given day or time because capacity fluctuates. And so medical professionals um, and others, capacity assessors, uh, would sometimes you know, not agree that someone had lost capacity, even though it might otherwise be a good idea for the attorney to step in and start managing the affairs. So um, again, as I, I just want to reinforce the fact that most of the time now we're talking about continuing powers of attorney, and they do come into effect the moment they are signed. I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about the impact of that in a few more minutes. To make a valid power of attorney for property, there's a few rules that the legislation requires. You have to be 18 years of age, and you must be mentally capable of doing so. So according to the government website who's mentally capable of making a power of attorney? Well, it means that you know what property you have and its approximate value. You're aware of the obligations that you may have to anyone who depends on you. So if you're financially supporting someone, you know what authority you're giving to the attorney. You understand that. Um, you know that the attorney must be accountable for all the decisions that they make. You know that you can cancel your power of attorney as long as you maintain capacity. And you understand that unless your attorney manages your property prudently, its value may decline. In other words, there's risk associated with appointing someone as power of attorney, and particularly in the person that you, uh, that you appoint. And then you understand that there's always the possibility that your attorney could misuse your power of attorney or misuse the power. So we'll talk about that in, uh, in a few minutes too. You can name more than one attorney to act at the same time. Unless you give them permission in the document to act separately, they will be required to act jointly. So make sure they get along and make sure that, you know, if you're going to insist that they act jointly, then we want to make sure they're people that uh, have the capacity to make a common decision. Not always the case in some families, right? I also really encourage people to name a substitute or a backup because if the person or people that you've named can't or won't act, you need someone else that's legally able to step in under the terms of that document. Otherwise, you're turfed back to the court for a guardian type uh, order. I think that, and we'll talk about the consequences of not having that in place or not having a document, a POA at, in place at all. But the example that I, I use, and this is in the will context rather than the power of attorney context, but I think the story lands the same way as a few years ago, we were uh, working with a woman who was 104 years old. And she had not updated her will in a very long time. And when she passed away, she had she outlived the executors that she named and every beneficiary that she had. So it was as if the will didn't exist. And the same thing presumably could um, could occur if if uh, if your power of attorney if your name power of attorney can't uh, can't or won't act for you. They are allowed to charge camp compensation, so they can take payment at a rate set out in the law, unless you say otherwise. You can also set a rate in the terms of the power of attorney document. You can set a specific fee agreement with them. Um, the courts generally approve. Now, this is complicated. And again, I, like, I don't know where some of these things come from, but here we go. 
3% on any money coming in and any money going out, and then three-fifths of 1% on the average annual value of the assets. That makes sense, right? Perfectly common. That's not how we charge our fees anymore, but that's that's kind of the standard. And uh, and like I said, if you want to prohibit your attorney from being paid or um, you want to set a different amount than what the courts would allow, then you can do that in the terms of the document. So I mentioned earlier that you, um, if you're giving a continuing or an enduring power of attorney, it comes into effect the moment that you sign it. So it's very important that that not be abused, right? And that you take care of that document and, and that it be used um, carefully. So it certainly doesn't prevent you, obviously, from looking after your own affairs while you're still capable of doing so. So it's it's obviously not necessary for your attorney to start to act the moment that you've set the document up. You may want to release that document to your attorney only on certain conditions, or you may want to leave it in a safe place and say so that uh, we they know that it's there, um, but it isn't something that they maybe have immediate access to if there's any concern that um, there may be some activity that's undertaken before you're ready for them to do that or before while you still maintain your capacity. And you can also uh, potentially give written directions to someone to release the document um, when the time comes. So I think David is probably going to talk about what happens if you don't have a power of attorney. And so I won't, uh, I won't, I won't spend too much time doing that. But I do want to say, I mentioned earlier that I, I had, um, we had some statistics that Royal Trust did, that RBC did around how many people have a power of attorney and don't have a power of attorney. So 65% of the people we surveyed across Canada said they didn't have a power of attorney. 65%, two thirds, basically. Now, 52% of the population also said they don't have a will. I really question why it is that we have such so many more people without a power of attorney than a will, because presumably those documents are being done generally at the same time. So the other possible, in my mind, solution to that is those people don't know they have a power of attorney, which might be even more frightening than the fact that they don't have one at all. But in any, in any case, equal, equally alarming. So if you don't have one of these documents in place, there's no one who has the legal authority, not even your spouse, to step into your shoes and start acting on your behalf. So any assets that you own only in your own name, it will be very hard for people to, to deal with those um, in the absence of a power of attorney document. And so someone will need to be appointed by the courts as a substitute decision maker. And David's going to speak about that. But let me leave it to say simply that it is a far more complex and difficult process than the act of getting a power of attorney in the first place. Fair? And expensive, expensive, Alexander says. Um, I think it's really important. I think a lot of us just think that we only need this document in place when we're at a certain age and we're worried about age-related cognitive impairment, age-related dementia. But there's a couple of stories that I've heard recently that, um, that I think really drive home the fact that that's not the case. So driving down here this morning, I listened to CBC Radio's uh, Dr. Brian Goldman's White Coat Black Art. And on the weekend, his story was all about, his show was all about powers of attorney. So he was interested in this because he ended up acting as power of attorney for his sister who became ill and subsequently passed away. But then a, a, a family doctor from down in uh, New Brunswick, I think, wrote into him and said, I want to tell you my power of attorney story. So they went down and they did a whole half hour show on this. And it was all about educating on what it means and being prepared. So this woman... Uh, family doctor in Fredericton or St. John. 
And she's acting as power of attorney for her brother, who at the age of 57, the you know picture of health, father to a teenager, unfortunately had lost his wife a few years prior to illness, has a debilitating stroke. And she knows that she's the power of attorney. So this was her story about the choices that she had to make for him from a personal care perspective, from where's he going to live? He wanted to go home. He wasn't able to go home. He's nonverbal. He only has one word. Um, he's got physical limitations. He's mostly in a wheelchair. Uh, what 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 do we do with that house? She decided she had to sell the house, but she has to tell the kid that the kid has to leave the house. I mean, it was a heart-wrenching story, but the guy was 57, right? So nobody was expecting that. So luckily, he at least had his documentation in place. Um the other story that I tell is, is an older one, and it's a personal one to me. I had a girlfriend, have a girlfriend still. She's still with us. Um, but she had a colleague, and this was many years ago. So we were in our, I'm going to say late 20s, early 30s. And um, the woman was married, and she had a catastrophic house fire. And her husband died in the fire, and she was in a medically induced coma because uh, because of her injuries. And they didn't have powers of attorney in place. They were... They were very young, relatively speaking, but someone had to start working with the insurance company and a construction company. The house was unsafe. So now they're navigating. They're, I mean, they're obviously reeling from the whole event. They're dealing with all the medical complexity of their daughter who's in a drug, uh, a medically induced coma and unfortunately ultimately did pass away. And they have to navigate the system, the court system to get a guardianship in place because the insurance company wouldn't deal with the mom and dad on the house. So, I mean, it's a terrible story and, you know, I'm touching all the wood that I can see, but um, bad things sometimes happen. And, and, and in comparison, the power of attorney document is just so much easier to have in place. But then there was also a, an interesting story in CBC News a while ago where an elderly man's daughter only learned that she had no authority over her father's finances when he became really ill and he became hospitalized for a long time. And she commented that if her father had simply signed a POA document, he really could have prevented so much heartache and headache for her and for her family. He'd been hospitalized for some weeks, and it wasn't until she ran into a neighbor that she realized that the power to his home had been shut off while he was hospitalized because the bills hadn't been paid. And so she realized she had to take over her, her management of her father's finances. Now, paying the utility bills wasn't such a big deal, but getting other things like financial institutions to take her authority um, took her a long time. And she said it took two years to get the necessary authorities to, to, to get the necessary authority to her father's finances. And um, in her words, quote, it's certainly something for people to think about, especially with aging parents. So think about what help, who you might be helping in the future, what, what, you know, older adults or, or contemporaries might be um, looking to you to act as their power of attorney, or you don't even necessarily get the formal appointment, maybe it's a good opportunity to have a conversation with them and see what paperwork they have in place. Okay, now I've said that about maybe you're going to have to act. So what are your duties and your responsibilities? What is it that when you're that you're asking of someone when you when you do ask them to be um, power of attorney? Or uh, I mean, quite often, sometimes people just appoint people and they don't tell them that they've done it. I mean, we see that even at the trust company. So the responsibilities can be, as the as the podcast I mentioned demonstrated, it, it really demand a great deal of time and energy. There's personal liability, and it can be really overwhelming for people to do the personal finance side of things and the personal care and also be grieving or caregiving at the same time, depending on, on the nature of what's happened. 
So the scope that, and the powers and, and the restrictions that an attorney has are found primarily in that power of attorney document and then what the legislation says. The overall responsibility is to act strictly in the best interest of the person for whom you're acting with honesty and good faith. Um, we do have, uh, both Alexandra and I have uh, a checklist and some resources that we're going to share with you after today's session um, that will go through some of those responsibilities. But just to mention a few of them very quickly, um, it's very important to stay in constant contact with, with the person that gave the uh, power of attorney, the donor, and their family, uh, depending on the level of cognitive ability of the donor. Um, as I mentioned earlier, working with the attorney for personal care, if that's not the same person, to make sure that the costs are being covered, of certainly paying all the bills, managing and safeguarding all the assets, keeping meticulous, detailed records of all the ins and all the outs, because you could potentially be called upon to account for every dollar in court. David, I'm not sure if you're going to touch on that part or not. Um, and ensuring tax returns are filed. And then, of course, making the necessary expenditures on their behalf and taking care of any dependents. If they were financially responsible for someone else, now it's the attorney's job um, to take care of those dependents. So all of these factors really make it critically important to think about who it is that you're naming as your attorney. I think people sometimes just make a rote decision or a um, don't give real thought to it. And um, that may not, that person may not thank you for having done that. Or it may, you know, if, if you could foresee the consequences, um, maybe you would make a different decision. So some of the things that we consider to be um, worth thinking about are things like, what's their financial acumen? You're asking them to look after your property and your assets. Would you do that? Would you give them that kind of authority while you're still capable of looking over their shoulder? If not, why do you want to give them that kind of power when you're not able to supervise what they're doing. What about location and ability to travel? There's an inconvenience factor when someone's out of the city, out of the province, out of the country. There could also be legal implications if someone's particularly out of the country. For example, um, someone who lives in the United States doesn't have the ability to give investment instructions to a Canadian investment advisor unless they have a U.S. license. That's a U.S. SEC regulatory issue, but it becomes a real little hiccup that people don't always know about. Age and stage in life. If we're not naming someone in the next generation, we're probably naming a, a sibling or a contemporary, a friend. I already gave my example of the 104-year-old that outlived all of her, uh, the people she named, but I mean, they, that person may not be in a position to act or they may not want to do it by the time you need them to. Um, what about organizational skills? What about time? Time to give to it. I mean, the the again, the, back to the podcast, the CBC podcast, uh, she was a family doctor. She didn't really have the time for an additional part-time job to act as attorney for her brother, but she she was going to do it. And then there's some of the things like that are sort of the softer side of this, the family harmony um, side, the potential for bias. So, you know, my parents have three kids. They would probably just, without thinking about it, name all three of us because that's what's fair, right? That's what's fair. Okay, but is that what makes sense? Is that what's right? Is that going to work in practice? And it comes back to some of this stuff I said earlier about decision-making, but it also, you know, typically when it's going to fall to one person to do it anyway. Okay, so maybe you decide just to name one because you know that they're the person that's going to do it anyway. Well, now the other two are angry. So what's that going to do to the family relationships between the siblings? And maybe now they're mad at you too because this just proves you love that one better than the other two. So there are, there are things to think about in this case. 
And then, and then the last thing is, you know, are you willing to put that kind of personal liability on someone? Because um, they are accountable, right? At the end of the day, they're accountable to to your executor and ultimately to your estate's beneficiaries, and they may be called upon to account. So I want to uh, I want to speed up a little bit because well I'm getting I'm 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 doing okay. So uh, effective marriage and divorce. Did you know that? Separation and divorce have no impact on the appointment of that spouse or partner as power of attorney, which means that you may have an ex-husband or wife who still has power of attorney over your property and or personal care. That's not the case with wills, but the legislation does not automatically, for powers of attorney, uh, take away the appointment. I don't know whether that's something any of us would want. Um, Let's segue very quickly into financial abuse as a result. Um, I, I, won't, I won't spend too much time on this, but it is pretty hard to have a conversation about aging and financial security and powers of attorney without talking a little bit about, about financial abuse. I differentiate between financial scams, like the grandparent scam, the strangers. They're strangers, right? They're people that we don't know. Financial abuse is perpetrated by someone that we do know, someone that's in a relationship with us, um, a trusted relationship generally, sometimes we're vulnerable to them. Sometimes we are reliant on those individuals. And so it goes underreported and um, and it's more prevalent, unfortunately, than we may think. Um, I have a friend, her name's Laura Tamblin Watts. She's CEO of a group called CanAge. And she says, quote, financial abuse involving powers of attorney is the most rampant. And she, she warns that abuses are grossly underreported. Victims are reluctant to come forward if the exploiter is a family member due to shame, fear of exposure, and even fear of being denied access to grandkids. And so I would argue they might be living with you. I mean, you might be denied access to housing. Um, so, you know, I think there's um, sometimes it's not intentional abuse. Sometimes it's just people not understanding uh, what the nature of their role is. And um, one of our, our legal colleagues um, has coined the phrase or uses the phrase, I attribute it to her, um, impatient inheritors, right? So uh, mom will never use all that money. Um, it would be better used by my kids who have high credit card debt or whatever the case may be. That's not the proper use of a power of attorney. Um, there's uh, there's lots of stories in the headlines um, and lots of uh, terrible, terrible tales um, in the news about uh, these kinds of situations, um, ranging from, you know, children to paid caregivers who get really um, in, in, embedded in the fabric of an older person's life and become very trusted and end up, unfortunately, taking advantage of them. And then there's something called predatory marriage out there, which is where someone targets someone for and marries them um, with the sole intention of, of getting access to their funds. And that tends to happen with a more vulnerable older person. So with all this in mind, um, I hope that maybe you take the opportunity to think about who it is that you have named or who you're thinking about naming as power of attorney, because I'm sure you all have a power of attorney document. And if you haven't, please take the opportunity to do that too. And give some thought to some of the things that I've mentioned about who might make the right choice. Um, there, there are times when it is appropriate and uh, lots of our clients turn to us as professionals to do this. We typically see uh, people who don't have family or friends in their life that they trust to do this. Or, you know, they'll turn to us as a professional because they simply think it's too complex. Their situation is, is too complex. The assets might be too large. 
for for their family or friends um, to manage for them as under a power of attorney, or they simply don't want to burden them. So there's there's lots of reasons why um, you might want to consider an alternative to children or nieces or nephews or the neighbor next door. And then the other thing I'll leave with you is have a conversation with the person that you're thinking of appointing or that you have appointed. Make sure they understand what it is you're asking of them. Maybe suggest that they look, take a look at some of the resources we plan to share and understand the duties and 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 give them the chance to say no thank you um, if they don't want to do it because you'd rather know now and have someone named that will do it than be stuck in a situation where... Um, where you don't have someone because they're refusing to act or they act um, and resent you for it. So have the conversation would be my other piece of advice. And with that, I'm going to hand it over to Alexander. Thank you, Leanne. I just wanted to add just one quick thing about property, because obviously what I do, I deal with both property and personal care in my practice. And uh, Leanne made this point, but I think it's actually worth making twice. No one, not even your spouse, has an automatic right to manage your property for you. I think it's really important to hear it. I, I, I do a lot of these estate planning seminars. A lot of people think, you know, Alexandra, I'm married. I don't, I don't need a power of attorney for property. You know, my husband's going to do it for me. And I, under, under what authority? Under what authority? Powers of attorney are critically important because you have to appoint someone as your attorney for property in order for them to be able to act for you. Some are a little bit more cynical and they say, okay, fine, Alexander, that's all well and good, but we don't need it because we co-own everything. We co-own our house. We co-own our bank accounts. We've named each other as beneficiary and everything. And I said, that doesn't get around it. The whole co-ownership, naming each other as beneficiaries, that's estate planning. That means one of you dies, the other gets it. Great. It does not give you the right to step into your spouse's shoes and deal with his or her 50% interest in the house. It does not give you the right to step into your spouse's shoes and do taxes for her or do this or do that. So you can't get around it. Really, the solution is make powers of attorney and appoint people you trust. Power of attorney legislation was hugely overhauled in Ontario in the 1990s. We had two very big pieces of legislation come in, the Substitute Decisions Act 1992 and the Healthcare Consent Act 1996. Therefore, if you did make powers of attorney prior to those dates, 92, 96, if you made them in the 80s or any other time, it's really important to speak to a lawyer about perhaps updating those documents because they're likely very updated. And I'm sure also a lot has happened in your life since the 80s. I'm from the 80s. So uh, I've, got, I've undergone a lot of changes since the 80s as well. Um, when I do speak about power of attorney, I am typically referring to the document. Some people will call themselves powers of attorney. Technically, the person is the attorney. And as Leanne said, the person giving the power of attorney or granting it uh, is either called the donor or the grantor. So I'll use that term. So what is personal care? I'm here really to talk to you about powers of attorney for personal care. Put simply, personal care is anything affecting the grantor's body. So personal care decisions include decisions relating to the grantor's health care, nutrition, shelter, clothing, hygiene, safety, giving consent to medical treatment or refusing to give consent to medical treatment, and also decisions relating to the grantor's admission to and staying within care facilities. So examples would include what does the grantor wear? What does the grantor eat? Where does the grantor live? That's a huge one, and there is some overlay with property there. What medications does the grantor take? And should the uh, grantor undergo a medical procedure like surgery or not undergo that procedure? 
So when can powers of attorney for personal care be used? Unlike a power of attorney for property, which can be used immediately right after it's executed, a power of attorney for personal care can only be used if and when the grantor has become mentally incapable of making personal care decisions for him or herself. So that makes sense. If you're still able to tell your doctor, I want this, I want that, the doctor's going to listen to you. So while the grantor must be mentally capable of making these decisions at the time he or she makes the power of attorney for personal care document, the named attorneys can only use the document and only have authority while the grantor is alive but has subsequently become incapable. So because of that, powers of attorney for personal care are kind of by their very nature continuing because they continue to become effective and they can continue to be used after the grantor has become uh, mentally incapable of making those decisions. Importantly, the test for capacity to give or revoke powers of attorney for personal care is different than the test for capacity to give revoke powers of attorney for property, just like how the test for capacity to make personal care decisions for oneself is different than the test uh, for capacity to manage one's own property. So as David, Leanne, and I, a lot of us in the area will know, there's no such thing as global incapacity. Capacity is task-specific. So when someone says, mom's incapable, I say, incapable of what? Is she incapable of getting married? Is she incapable of making a power of attorney for personal care power of attorney? Let's break that down. And why this matters is because someone might still be able to do some of those things. They may still be able to give or make or revoke a power of attorney for personal care, depending on the nature of their cognitive impairment, but they may have lost the ability to make property decisions. So it's, it's very important kind of not to conflate the two. And of course, a lot of cognitive impairment is progressive. So you might lose the ability to do one. Probably at some point, especially if you end up with quite advanced dementia, you will have lost the ability to do both. But it is important to appreciate that the test uh, to make these documents is slightly different from each other. Uh, things to consider when deciding upon attorneys for personal care. So like with property, it's really, really important to pick a person or people that you trust. Attorneys have a positive obligation on them to act diligently on the grantor's behalf with honesty and integrity, and they must act reasonably and in good faith. So if you think that one of your desires may not follow all of those requirements, of course, that's a real red flag. As Leanne said, and it's very important to emphasize, because I get asked this all the time, attorney doesn't mean lawyer. So I, if I am your lawyer, am not your attorney for property or your attorney for personal care. Attorney is more of an American word anyway. So attorney, again, you don't have to name the lawyer in the family or the doctor in the family or anything else. So attorney doesn't uh, connote that you have to name a legal professional. Um, while trust companies and other professionals like lawyers will sometimes offer the service, they will agree to be your attorney for property. They will not agree to do this for personal care, as Leanne mentioned. So you really do have to name individuals. So I, we always encourage clients to consider the best possible options from among their group of friends and family members. So not just family members, but is there a friend? Is there a neighbor? Is there someone you know who can do this decision for you? Slight differences, again, between personal care and property. In Ontario, the named attorney must be at least 16 years of age. But since acting as an attorney can involve making end-of-life decisions for the grantor, we typically encourage clients to name someone older, perhaps a little bit more mature. So I don't 
<laughs> I don't I, I don't have teenagers yet, but I remember being a teenager. So I don't know what genius in the Ontario government thought that 16-year-olds should be making end-of-life decisions, but contrast that with property where everything is 18. So again, minimum age to both make and do these documents and act as 16, property is 18. But obviously, we encourage uh, naming someone older. But as Leanne said, and is an important point, maybe not someone so old. So when you're young, it may be appropriate to name parents or to name siblings. But obviously, as you're as your named attorney's age, it is appropriate to update this. And, and if you are you know, elderly, maybe consider naming someone younger than you. I usually recommend having at least two attorneys. Now, this could be one primary attorney and maybe one alternate or substitute in case your primary attorney, like your spouse, can no longer act or continue to act for you at that point in time. The other option is to name them jointly or jointly and severally. So if one of them can't act, at least the other can continue to act for you at that time. Unlike with property, there are no tax or potentially negative implications with respect to naming individuals who are U.S. citizens or naming individuals who live outside of Canada, but you need to ask how practical is that? So could the person you want to appoint actually come to Kingston or wherever you live quickly and attend at the hospital in the event of you suffering a medical emergency? You know, if he or she is physically a four or five, six hour flight away from you, that may not be possible. Further, what if ongoing attendance is required at your home, the hospital, the doctor's office, the care facility? Consider where your desired attorneys live and how feasible, practical it is for them to come to you, potentially on a regular basis if you're ill for some time. Hospitals, care facilities, and other healthcare providers can't always verify someone's ID over the phone, so often in-person instructions are needed. If you're naming more than one attorney tag jointly, or more than one attorney tag jointly and severally, and there is a difference between those which you should discuss with your lawyer, you need to consider how do those proposed attorneys get along both with you and with each other? Do they even know each other? There's no point naming a family member and a friend who have never met and have, don't have each other's contact information or even knowledge about the other. On the other side, maybe there are people who know each other well, maybe a little bit too well, and maybe there's a history of conflict between them or a, a history of disharmony. Does one tend to dominate the other? So if we're naming siblings, for example. So just because you have three children doesn't mean you need, you need to name all three of them as your attorneys for property or attorneys for personal care. People have different strengths and weaknesses, so be alert to what they're good at and maybe what they're not so good at. That three attorneys, by the way, is not a random example. I did have a client a few years ago. She came into my office and kind of before we quickly sat down, she just very said, she said, Alexander, look, I have three children. I want them all treated equally. And I want all three of them as executors and three of them as attorneys for property and three of them as attorneys for personal care. And I said, okay, let's break that down a bit. Let's break that down a bit. You know, you want them to be equal beneficiaries? Fine. That's all well and good. You know, executors, we talked about that. Attorneys for property, we talked about that. Kind of the funniest thing that came out of it was was personal care. And I was saying, like, well, you know, what are each of your daughters do, you know, and, and, and would they be able to make these kind of medical decisions for you? It turned out one of the daughters was deathly afraid of hospitals, like would pass out at the sight of needles, afraid of hospitals. So I'm thinking this is not incredibly useful when you're lying on a 
hospital bed and the doctors are like, what do we do for mom? And your attorney is on the floor being resuscitated. So we laughed about it because you kind of have to laugh about it. But I said, do not do this to your poor daughter. You know, she's going to freak out. She's going to pass out, whatever. Don't put her in that position. You know, name your other children. You know, they'll have a duty to consult with her. We'll talk about that in a sec. But don't put her in a decision-making position. It's not, it's not fair. Another good question, especially when it comes to personal care, but it's relevant for property too, is do any of the proposed attorneys you're considering have relevant training? For example, are they doctors, nurses, social workers? That might make them particularly well-suited to make these personal care decisions on your behalf. As noted above, your attorney for personal care may need to make difficult end-of-life decisions for you, including the decision to discontinue life-sustaining procedures, life support. Realistically, can your proposed attorney or attorneys make those difficult decisions? Be honest, and I would say don't worry as much about hurting feelings. Pick the person or the people within your circle of friends and, and family who are best suited to make these kinds of decisions in a matter in which you, as the grantor, are likely to agree. Lastly, like with property, ask your proposed attorney in advance if he or she is willing to act if and when required. A named attorney can always decline to act. You can't force someone to be your attorney. It's called renunciation. They can say, I don't want to do it. So make sure there's a realistic chance of your desired attorneys actually acting if and when the time comes. So that means asking them while you still have the requisite capacity to change this document if needed. Prior expressed wishes and, and no heroic measure clauses. This is a huge area in personal care. If the grantor has expressed wishes with respect to his or her personal care, then the attorney for personal care is generally required to follow those wishes if the wishes are known to attorney and if following those wishes is possible and legal. For example, if the grantor is very religious and has advised his attorney, whether orally or in writing, that he wants all life-sustaining procedures used and he doesn't want life support terminated, even if recovery seems unlikely, the attorney would generally be required to comply with those wishes, even if the attorney personally disagrees with them. Conversely, if the grantor has a no heroic measures clause in the POA document, and that's typically something that says that he does not wish to be kept alive if he has a terminal condition and there's no reasonable chance of recovery and any life support being used is only artificially prolonging the dying process. Then again, if there's no heroic measures clause in the document, again, same thing, the attorney would generally be required to comply with those wishes if the, even if the attorney personally disagrees with those wishes. Another common example, and it is one that has arisen in my practice, is um, what if someone's a Jehovah's Witness? I don't know if you know, but Jehovah's Witnesses generally prohibit blood transfusions. So if you, again, have the grantor and she has said something like, I don't want a blood transfusion no matter what, even if I could die as a result of that choice, Again, the attorney would generally be required to advocate on behalf of the grantor and say no blood transfusions, no blood transfusions, regardless of the attorney's own personal opinions about that decision. Very importantly, and, and again, another benefit of doing powers of attorney is you can put instructions and wishes into the document itself. And then that way, it's not a guessing game. Gee, what did mom want? She never told us. It's in there. Oh, we know what mom wants. It's right there. So it is particularly, it's often great guidance if you haven't had these difficult conversations with the people you're naming about what you might want in a particular circumstances. If the grantor has not expressed wishes with respect to personal care, then generally the attorney for personal care is required to make a decision in accordance with the grantor's best interests. 
And in determining best interests, and these are the legislative requirements, the attorney for personal care must consider the values and beliefs that the attorney knows the grantor held when capable and believes the grantor would still act if or still act on if capable. The grantor's current wishes, if they can be ascertained, so that does mean speaking with someone, even someone who isn't capable, and the following factors, whether or not the attorney's decision is likely to improve the quality of the grantor's life, prevent the quality of the grantor's life from deteriorating, or reduce the extent to which or the rate at which the quality of the grantor's life is likely to deteriorate. And they're also supposed to weigh whether the benefit the grantor is expected to obtain from the decision outweighs the risk of harm to the grantor from the alternative decision. So in generally, an attorney for personal care should choose the least restrictive and intrusive course of action that's available and appropriate. Like with property, an attorney for personal care must explain his or her decisions to the grantor, foster the grantor's independence if possible, and encourage the grantor to participate to the best of his or her abilities in decisions about his or her own personal care. So that means talking to the grantor, even if we all know the grantor is incapable, he or she still has a right to have uh, his or her voice heard. David might speak about this a little bit, but this is a positive obligation and it sometimes leads to litigation. There is a positive duty to consult with supportive family members and friends. So what does that even mean? Attorneys for personal care must seek to foster regular contact between the grantor and, quote unquote, supportive family members and friends and must consult with them from time to time. This is under the legislation. Now, this does not necessarily mean that the attorney for personal care is required to follow the recommendations or suggestions of those family members and friends, provided that the attorney makes a decision which is reasonable in the circumstances. However, an attorney for personal care who fails to act or acts improperly can be removed. So if you're acting as an attorney for personal care, consultation is not simply telling family members and friends what you've done. Like, oh, look, I did this. That's not consultation. That's telling people what you've done. So generally, it's held to meaningfully seek someone's opinion and, uh, and input. Consultation is obviously not always possible, especially in the personal care context. Sometimes there's an urgent care situation and there aren't five available options. The doctor may need authority and need someone to say yes or no right there in that second. So if that happens, then there would be an expect expectation to inform supportive family members and friends after the fact. Mom had a heart attack. She went to hospital. Here's what happened. Many people will claim to be supportive family members and friends, and the attorney may disagree with that categorization. So, for example, if a child hasn't spoken to his or her father in five years, is that child a supportive family member to the father? Does an attorney nonetheless have an obligation to try and seek that child's opinion and keep the child informed anyway? These are difficult questions and, obvi and obviously context-specific. One simple solution that grantors could consider is perhaps listing anyone in the immediate family, parents, siblings, children, grandchildren, whom the grantor specifically does not consider to be supportive and does not want the attorney to have to consult with. So, for example, I specifically do not require my attorney to consult with my child, John Doe, because I've been estranged for John for over 10 years and I do not consider him a supportive family member. That could probably prevent a lot of litigation when John shows up at the hospital. Overlap with powers of attorney for property. So they're not perfectly separate circles. It's a Venn diagram, people. There's, there's a middle. And one area in which there's overlap between personal care and property decisions is where the grantor lives. 
So where the grantor lives falls under personal care. However, it obviously involves the grantor's property too, because paying for that decision, does the grantor live at home in a care facility? And if at a care facility, which one can be affected by the grantor's financial situation? If your attorneys for property and attorneys for personal care are the same people, disagreement's obviously not an issue. However, if you've appointed a different people, so for example, your brother for property, your sister for personal care, there is the potential for disagreement and conflict. So we encourage clients to be mindful of this when picking attorneys. Many of my clients have very strong opinions about where they want to live as they age. Therefore, this very important decision where the grantor lives, if he or she can no longer make the decision for him or herself, it can't be made in a vacuum by the attorney for personal care or by the attorney for property. And meaningful disclosure and consultation between the attorneys would be expected to occur. If a grantor does have specific wishes, I'd like to stay as, at home as long as possible, even if it would cost more money than living in a care facility. That's something, again, that could be included right in the POA document itself. And I would suggest also probably in the power of attorney for property document, too. I'll briefly speak about MAID, medical assistance and dying, because it is something that a lot of my clients raise with me. If someone who has a serious and incurable injury, disease, or disability, which currently excludes mental illness until at least March 17th of this year, and who is in an advanced state of irreversible decline in, in capability, wishes to pursue medical assistance in dying or MAID, formerly called doctor-assisted suicide or physician-assisted suicide, then as of today's date, that person must have the requisite mental capacity required under MAID. There are safeguards in place to try and ensure that the person has this capacity. Therefore, so-called advanced directives in which a person authorizes his or her attorney for personal care to make made-related decisions on his or, her his or her behalf, including the decision to apply for made, are unenforceable and invalid as of today's date. So in general, what that means is that if the grantor at issue loses the requisite mental capacity to make personal care decisions for him or herself, and therefore his or her POA for personal care is activated, that means that in general, MAID is no longer an option for that grantor. And the grantor's attorney for personal care cannot elect to proceed with MAID on the incapable grantor's behalf. That's, that's the, date, the state of the law as of today's date. I think my final point before I pass to David is that POAs, hopefully you've gotten this from Leanne and I, POAs are powerful documents. In Ontario, we're given the freedom to choose who we want to make property and personal care decisions for ourselves, particularly if we do lose the requisite mental capacity to make these decisions later on. But with freedom comes the obligation to actually exercise this freedom in a valid document. Unlike with property, as I mentioned, there is a default list of people who could make a, a more limited range of personal care decisions for you if and when you become incapable of making personal care decisions and you don't have a valid or usable POA for personal care. However, these may not be the people you would have chosen if you still had the ability to choose. Again, let's go back to three kids. You got three kids, you don't have a spouse, it's all those three kids making decisions, even if you are estranged for one or think one is, is kind of problematic for exercising these decisions for you. So take the power yourself, name maybe the children or other people you'd like to name. You do have this ability in Ontario. It's not only important to create POAs, but to update these documents as changes in your life occur. I'll pass it along to David, but thanks. Thank you very much. So 
uh, who likes to write big checks to their lawyer? Anybody? I mean, surely you must enjoy writing a $50,000 check to your lawyer. No? Uh, I see people, and I get involved in situations in which it's necessary to go to court. And boy, is it expensive to go to court. Um, unless you really have to go to court, you don't want to. The bad news is that the legislation that we have, uh, the Substitute Decisions Act 1992, and the Healthcare Consent Act, oh, how about if I turn on the mic? <laughs> I didn't say I was smart. Um, right. The Substitute Decisions Act and the Healthcare Consent Act are the principal forms of legislation, as my colleagues have pointed out. And they're both in need of an overhaul. There are um, occasions where it's absolutely necessary to go to court because something bad has happened. Unfortunately, sometimes it's necessary to go to court just to clear up an uncertainty. And it's very, very expensive. And if you can avoid going to court, you should. People don't want to spend money on lawyers. But I have to tell you, in this area, it is an absolutely good idea to go and consult a lawyer to get advice on incapacity planning. Does that sound me? Or is there, is there something that I'm doing that I shouldn't be doing? Okay. <laughs> now, I'm not going to annoy you and say, raise your hand if you haven't made a power of attorney. Raise your hand if you don't know. Um, I do that to my students in my first class. Uh, when I teach wills in the states, and I tell them to you know raise their hands if they haven't made a power of attorney, and then I do this. <laughs> hey, you need to make a power of attorney. Okay, I don't care what age you are; it doesn't matter. You got to go make one. If you don't have one, make an appointment to see your lawyer in the next week and get one done. Um, it's extremely expensive if you don't have one and you need a substitute decision maker. If you don't have a power of attorney. And as my colleagues have pointed out, no one has authority to make decisions generally for you. Under the Healthcare Consent Act, yes, people can make decisions. They can consent to healthcare treatment and extremists. Even a treating physician can consent to health, uh, a healthcare decision and extremists. If you get hit by a bus and you're taken to KGL, KGH, no one's going to call your lawyer and ask them for a copy of the power of attorney. Somebody's going to make a decision to get you into surgery right now, and that's going to probably be the treating physician. But if you don't have a power of attorney, then it's necessary to go to court and to have what's called a guardian appointed. A guardianship application is a very expensive piece of litigation that can be avoided. Judges, when they're asked to make a guardianship order, usually there's one or two kinds of situations that arise. Either, as I say, there's no power of attorney, or there's something bad that's happening. There's bad behavior of some sort, and now there's a, a power of attorney that's in place, but the judge just ne needs to order a guardianship to trump that power of attorney and stop the bad uh, behavior from happening. 
Judges are very uh, concerned not to make guardianship orders if it's inappropriate to do so. I mean, everybody here values their independence. You want to make decisions for yourself. If a judge orders guardianship of someone, it's, it's not that you're going to jail, but your independence is completely gone. And so a judge is going to be very reluctant to make that order unless it's necessary to do so. So there's a few things that are going to happen. One, there has to be a capacity assessment that's performed to determine whether somebody is incapable and incapable of what. So that's one thing that happens. Then that per the person that's subject to the proceedings, they're going to have a lawyer that's appointed by, by the Ministry of the Attorney General in most cases on authority by the court to represent that person. They're going to need to be paid as well, and the incapable person is going to pay them. Um, and then there is putting the application together and actually putting it in front of the judge. So it's about $15,000 that it's going to cost to do a guardianship application, sometimes a little less, sometimes a little more. Instead of spending $15,000 doing a guardianship application, do a power of attorney with your lawyer. You can get a kit online um, through the uh, Ontario government website, which explains what powers of attorney are and gives you the forms. Don't use it. Don't use it. I wish they would take it off offline. I'm not a great believer in people having to go to lawyers to do things. I mean, that does impede access to justice. However, the power of attorney forms that are available will lawfully designate an attorney to act for, for someone, but it doesn't come with instructions. And so what happens is usually, well, not usually, but often, uh, a situation is set up where the attorney is not destined to succeed, they're destined to fail, and there's a problem that arises. If you go to a lawyer, the lawyer can draft the power of attorney appropriately and give advice on how the uh, the right people to perform, the, to be appointed. I usually uh, suggest to um, lawyers that they have their clients prepay a consultation with the lawyer for the attorney. I mean, attorneys are entitled to hire legal counsel, but they'll be reluctant to spend the incapable person's money. But they should come in to see the lawyer and get an hour lesson on how to use the power of attorney. It can be things like, um, if it's a power of attorney for, for property management, um, you know, a power, an attorney has to keep records. They have to keep receipts. So my advice would be, get a box, a big box. Tape it. Cut a little hole in it. Put it beside your, your bed. Every receipt goes in the box. Keep records. Every receipt goes in the box. One thing that can happen to attorneys, and this is very sad when it happens, is they're appointed under a power of attorney. They want to um, manage their you, you know, brothers, parents, whatever is money. But nobody teaches them how to use the power of attorney. They don't save any receipts. The person dies. Everybody that's interested in their estate says, well, what'd you do with all the money? You know, for 15 years, you've been mom's power of attorney. Where, what have you know, she's missing $150,000. Do you have any receipts? No, I'm doing my best. Now that person's going to pay $150,000 to the estate.
that happens all the time because nobody sat them down and said, when you're managing somebody else's money, you have to keep records. You have to keep the receipts. You have to show what you've done with the money. If you don't, you can be on the hook. So the difficulty with not making a power of attorney is that you can set your, your attorney, or with a lawyer, is that you can set your attorney up for, for failure. In any case, a guardianship application is made where there's no power of attorney, and it's made on notice to an officer in the provincial government called the Ontario Public Guardian and Trustee. The Ontario Public Guardian and Trustee has a lot of jurisdiction. They are the guardian of last resort. So let's say there's no a person that has no one else to act for them. In theory, the Ontario Public Guardian and Trustee can be their guardian. If that person has a blood relative who is a hermit that's living in a cave in Nepal, the PGT will find them and say, we're not going to act because you have a relative that's able to make an application to the court and you'll be without a, an attorney. So the consequences of not making um, a power of attorney art to invoke a process that involves government officers, require somebody to do extensive preparation, go to court, demonstrate incapacity, demonstrate their fitness. They can get the order from a judge, but it's extremely expensive. And so it's something that I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't wish on anybody. Capacity assessors or geriatric psychiatrists may be required to give an opinion on capacity. As my colleagues have said, just because a person is incapable of one decision doesn't mean they're incapable of all decisions. And so it may be necessary to go to court for a determination as to what a person is capable of uh, doing for themselves and what's not uh, within their um, cognitive abilities. The example that um, was said in passing was uh, separation and divorce. A person can marry and be cognitively impaired, but not be able to manage their property. And the legislation is designed to allow independence to be retained to the extent that it's possible to do so. So sometimes court applications are required, not on fault of anyone, but because there's a disagreement between the substitute decision taker and the person who's made the power of attorney. And now the question becomes, can that person make the decision for themselves? You know, they met somebody in a long-term care facility and they formed a relationship and they want to dignify that relationship by becoming married. Are they entitled to do so? Well, if they have capacity, notwithstanding the fact that their substitute decision maker says, you know, mom's only been dead for four years. Are you sure you really want to do this? They get to make that decision. And so in those cases, this is also sometimes it's necessary to go to court. Um, most of the time, um, litigation in this area arises from bad behavior. Um, I started my career before I went back to graduate school as a criminal lawyer. And I thought I'd seen everything <laughs> by being a criminal lawyer. Boy, oh boy. Uh, uh, doing work in this area, I'm astounded at the things that people get up to and are capable of. There is a serious problem with elder abuse, uh, exploitation, and neglect. 
it's very unrepresented or very unreported, excuse me, normally because the wrongdoer is the principal caregiver of the incapable person and the only person that's available to deliver care or is willing to deliver care. If you take that person and you remove them, the situation gets much worse. And so it really does complicate things. The problems that arise um, are in respect of people that don't follow the advice that their lawyers have given them. Um, siblings that are tasked with making decisions jointly for their parent that do not get along. I mean, do not get along, will not cooperate with each other in any way. What happens is all of the uh, parents' money, because usually they're managing their parents' affairs, get squandered on lawyers. Right? They go to court, they fight with each other over two or three years. Every time a decision needs to be made, they can't agree on it. They have to go to court and a judge is going to make a decision for them. Should they sell the house? Should mom go into long-term care? Should we repair the water heater? Um, the water heater repair costs $200. The litigation to determine whether the water heater should be repaired, that costs $20,000. Be very careful in who you appoint and whether they have the right skill set to do the job. Estate litigation, incapacity litigation often involves problems. You could see this coming 20 years ago, but sometimes the parent often doesn't want to be rude, doesn't want to be hurtful, doesn't want to exclude one child over the other, and it's absolutely necessary to do so. Misappropriation of assets is a huge problem. Um, we live in a time where there is a great transfer of wealth from one generation to another, but I don't know if you read the newspaper lately, but uh, things are not really good for people, and a lot of people are under financial pressure. When tasked with um, managing a pool of money for a parent or a grandparent, there is a tendency to pre-take inheritance or to use the money as uh, if it were your own. And so the power of attorney now is considered a card for an ATM and they just keep withdrawing. And that becomes a real, a real difficulty. If that's the case, it's necessary to get a lawyer involved as quickly as possible. Um, and I would suggest if anyone um, knows of those kinds of circumstances where they, um, they would need to do something about it, first of all, the Ontario Public Guardian and Trustee does have an investigation arm, and you can call them. They have a 1-800 number online. In theory, they will come out and investigate. You have to really bother them. They don't have a big budget, but they may be able to send somebody out. If not, and a lawyer is uh, required, I would suggest that um, a lawyer with expertise in guardianship litigation be retained rather than a general practice lawyer because it's a difficult area of law. It's a little arcane. It's, it's hard to get things done if you don't know what you're doing, and it will save a lot of grief to get somebody that actually knows about this uh, involved, and we can, we can staunch the bleeding fairly quickly. Um, the last um, thing I want to talk about, I want to take a lot of time because I'd rather uh, have the time available for, for questions, is um, end-of-life decision-making. This is certainly the most poignant uh, part of the story. 
people make powers of attorney normally because they recognize um, that they're not going to be able to make decisions for themselves. Managing your money is one thing. Um, I'm told that the laws of the universe being as they are, they are you're not going to be able to take it with you. So, I mean, maybe that's important, but I'll tell you the incapacity part of who makes healthcare decisions for you, I would say that that should be more important to you than who gets your money. That affects you and what happens if you're not capable of making decisions. In my view, and I'll, I'll, I'm going to depart a little bit from the from my colleagues, but not in a way, I don't mean to in any way undermine what they, they said, but I, I just want to highlight um, the power of attorney document a little bit. Where there's a dispute about end-of-life decision-making, there's normally a number of people that are involved in that dispute. There's the attorney, there's other family members, and there's the treating physicians. The treating physicians are in a difficult position. They have to offer treatment or cannot offer treatment or offer or want to withdraw treatment based on their judgment as professionals and in conformity with the rules that govern the practice of medicine by the College of Physicians and Surgeons. So they have to absent anything else, think about the best interests of a patient as the best interests of that patient are um, regulated under the Healthcare Consent Act. And that is primarily a question of efficacy of treatment. So should we offer treatment or should we want to withdraw treatment? That is withdraw life support. A person that makes a power of attorney may have very firm views about how they want their substitute decision maker to make decisions. Courts will say that the attorney should be guided by the last capable wishes of the incapable party. But again, we're dealing with people. And if you put a matter before a judge and you say, Your Honor, uh, there's a disagreement between the substitute decision maker and the treating physician with respect to with the withdrawal of life support. The doctors say there is no hope of recovery. Or the doctors say, and this is something a lot of people don't know, the patient is already dead. That is their heart's beating, but their brain's not functioning. Neurological death is a form of death that we assess. People have religious beliefs. You know, there are different faith communities in a multicultural society, and people may have very strong views as to how they think of death and how they want end-of-life care decisions to be made. I'm not a big fan of the phrase, no heroic measures. And I don't mean to imply that that's bad drafting practice or anything. Lawyers like magic words and magic phrases, you know, like we all know what it means. You know, no heroic measures. I don't know which hero you have in mind when you say this, when you say no heroic magic measures. It's important to, for um, a person that has strong views about end-of-life care to spell those out fully. And I would say in the power of a doc attorney document or an attachment to the power of an attorney document, 
What do you consider to be death? Under your religious beliefs, is death when the heart stops? And only when the heart stops? Or does that include neurological death as well? Do you agree that your substitute decision maker can consent to tests being done to determine whether there's neurological death? Do you mean by no heroic measures, were there only where there's like a minimal chance of recovery? What is it that you contemplate? Do you mean if my heart is beating, I do I want to have life support? The doctors say only a miracle will save this person. Well, you believe in miracles and you want the want, want to be treated with them. It's very important for those last capable wishes to be expressed in a fulsome way, so that a judge, when they look at it, is going to say, yes, this person considered the situation. They considered that they may, not, they may not recover. They considered that they may be on life support for a long time. Whatever the case may be, now we're going to leave it to the substitute decision maker to make that decision. Otherwise, a judge is going to say, I'm not sure, and I'm going to grant an injunction, prevent the life support from being taken away while this winds its way through the courts. And it may be that it's resolved within that person's lifespan. It may be that it takes quite a long time to go from an administrative tribunal that we call the Consent and Capacity Board to the Ontario Superior Court of Justice, to the Ontario Court of Appeal, and possibly to the Supreme Court of Canada at great expense. If end-of-life care is something that's important to you, not only should you think about it, but that you should capture in a fulsome way what your attitude is so that your substitute decision-maker has no doubts as to what it is that you want to be done or not be done, and that a dispassionate third party like a judge can say, yes, in fact, they want life support to be withdrawn. Otherwise, the physicians are going to have to revert to the Healthcare Consent Act and say, it's not clear what the person said in the power of attorney. There's a dispute as to what they really meant or they didn't really mean. And some children are going to say this and some children are going to say that. And now we have to bring it into a court for determination. It's a nightmare, an absolute nightmare. This is an area where... Like, People are fixated on money and leaving money. You can't take it with you, and after you're dead, I'm sure it's not going to matter to you. When you're planning for older ages, it's very important, in my view, to have a, an incapacity plan that's realistic, that speaks to your needs, that speaks to the needs of other people around you, and that incorporates your values. So there's a lot of work for you to do. Lawyers can help you operationalize that. They can't help you through the thinking and the preferences. It's important to discuss these matters with those that are close to you so that they know. They know your attitude towards end-of-life care. They know where the power of attorney documents are. There are. They know why one child was appointed and not another child was appointed. 
because if these these things are not resolved in advance and they're not resolved, I think, with notice to important people in your life, you may re be required to go to a court at tremendous expense to resolve these these questions. And believe me, that's not not what you want. I've got a million bad stories, I, which I'm not going to tell you, and you don't want to be caught up in any of them. A little bit of planning and some re, you know, realism about the people in your life and what you can expect of them and what, who's good at what and what's, that's, all, that's, that's what's required to create a solid incapacity plan using professionals that are used to advising as to options. Otherwise, unfortunately, you have to go to court and um, that's not what you want to do.